I invite you to take your copies of God's Word and to open with me to Paul's letter to the Romans. We're going to be in chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. Romans 9, 14 through 18 on our sermon entitled, The Justice of God's Mercy. The Justice of God's Mercy. So we continue to walk verse by verse through this glorious epistle of Paul to the Romans in our sermon series, God's Righteousness Revealed. We've come to chapter 9. We're in verses 14 through 18. I'll begin reading there. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then... He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. This is the Word of God. Let us hear it and heed it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord, it will what? Stand forever. Have you ever thought about what God could do? I mean, every Lord's day, the Lord could send an angel and appear in the sky over all the earth and write in burning fire John 3.16 so that every person could go outside and read John 3.16 in glowing fire burning in the sky written by the hand of an angel. He could do that every day, every Lord's Day if he wanted to. Why does he not? In the Gospels, we observe that Jesus did a countless number of miraculous signs and wonders in the Galilean towns of Capernaum and Bethsaida. Perhaps you'll recall what Jesus said then, uh, that the, the, the city of Capernaum seemed to have been a hub and a headquarters for Jesus and His disciples to do the ministry early on in Jesus' ministry. And I've always been amazed at what Jesus told the masses who rejected Him in those towns of Capernaum and Bethsaida where He performed these miracles. Do you remember what He said? He said, If I had done the signs and wonders in Sodom and Gomorrah, that I did among you, then they would have repented. Again, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Clearly the point that Jesus is trying to make to these Galilean towns of Jews 
whether it's Capernaum and Chorazin or Bethsaida, is that God has revealed to them a great light. Yet they had become more sinful and deserving of God's destructive wrath than the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, of Tyre and Sidon, which are in present-day Lebanon, whom God had famously or infamously destroyed. I mean, the sin of Sodom and the sin of Gomorrah and their subsequent destruction with fire and brimstone falling from heaven is well known from its telling in Genesis. Also, if we read the, the, the prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel, we see these judgment oracles that are given against Tyre and Sidon and their kings and princes over them for the things that they have done. And they are equally terrifying. But when I hear Jesus say something like this to them, I'm also led to ask, why didn't you, Lord? Why didn't you? Why didn't you perform such deeds in Sodom and Gomorrah if it could have led to their repentance? Why didn't you do signs and wonders in Tyre and Sidon if it could have led to their salvation? Perhaps the answer to that is not ours to know, is it? It's not ours to speculate. But it does lead us to the conclusion that God's ways and God's purposes are higher than ours. Clearly, God is not sitting in heaven trying His best to save as many people as He possibly can. He's not attempting to persuade more people to believe in Him only to be failing miserably. That's not how salvation works. And it's not how God works in salvation, not at all. Instead, we note that God is sovereignly working out His plan to save certain individuals that He has set apart from before the foundation of the world. Before the very ages began. It is a plan in which God will prove able and faithful to accomplish all that He has purposed. All that He has set out to do. Nothing can stop Him. No one can hold back His hand. What God plans, He accomplishes. What God purposes, He fulfills. He brings to fruition, His Word will never fail. His promises are always fulfilled. In the previous paragraph of Romans 9, Paul began to set forth his answer as to why so many ethnic Israelites hadn't been saved. They had been blessed, sure, but they hadn't believed. They had received the covenants, but they had rejected the Christ. Does this failure on Israel's part to obtain salvation indicate a failure on God's part to keep His Word? Paul says, no, it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't is because God has never intended to save all of ethnic Israel. Rather, true Israel is composed of not all and not only those who are descended from Israel after the flesh. Instead of Israel being made up of those, all those descended from Abraham after the flesh, 
It is instead the children of the promise who are children of God. To prove then that this concept of distinguishing between children of the flesh and children of promise is not something new, but has always been a part of the way that God has worked, Paul gave the example of two sets of brothers, of Ishmael and Isaac, Abraham's son, and then of Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. Abraham's son Isaac, through the Egyptian bondservant Hagar, was merely a child of the flesh. While Abraham's son Isaac, that was born to Sarah in her old age, was the child of promise. Similarly, Isaac also had two sons. But these sons were from the same mother, Rebekah, and they were born at the same time, for they were twins. But just like with Ishmael and Isaac, God made a sovereign choice between these two brothers. And Paul makes it clear that the story reveals that God made this choice before the boys were even born, without basing his choice on anything they had done, whether good or bad. He did it so that God's purpose of election might stand. And he chose against the way of the world, picking the younger over the older. Indeed, he clearly chose Jacob, but he rejected Esau. And so from that passage, last week we noted five things that we can learn about God's sovereign election. We learned that God's sovereign election is unambiguous, that is unmerited, that is ultimate, that it is unexpected, and that it is undeniable. But having said all of that, we need to ask the question this week, is God's sovereign election also unfair? Is it also unfair? And so the first point that I want to make from verse 14 is the objector's allegation against God's sovereign election. The objector's allegation against God's sovereign election. Do you hear it in the question Paul asked at the beginning of verse 14? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The question amounts to a slight detour from the primary topic at hand. The question of, uh, that is primary is, has God failed? But in order to answer that question, Paul brought up the doctrine of sovereign election. So his answer goes something like, No, God hasn't failed by not saving all of ethnic Israel because God never intended to save all of ethnic Israel. God has always acted to save those who He has specifically and sovereignly chosen. So the next question then becomes, and this is the question that we're dealing with in our passage today, if that's the case, then is God fair? What I love about God's Word and the argument that Paul makes or, or that God makes through Paul in this passage is that he anticipates and echoes the immediate cry of our sinful and ignorant hearts, doesn't he? Isn't that what we too are thinking when we hear Paul tell us that God chose Isaac 
and not Ishmael. That God loved Jacob, but Esau he hated. Our minds are protesting. Wait, what? That's not my God because that's not fair. And the fact that Paul does anticipate our objection so well indicates to us that up until this point, we have correctly interpreted the passage. We've understood what Paul is saying so far. The charge of injustice is certainly a serious one. It strikes then at the very character of God Himself. And there are numerous passages in the Bible that declare God's absolute righteousness. For instance, Psalm 92.15 says, The Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in Him. And similarly, in Deuteronomy 32.4, The rock, His word is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is He. You see, if God is somehow unjust, then not only can He not rightly be called God, but He cannot be considered the just judge of all the universe. Bildad, the friend of Job, rightly asked Job, does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right in Job 8.3? And King Jehoshaphat charged the human judges that he had appointed over Israel, saying in 2 Chronicles 19.7, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. Finally, Job's young counselor Elihu also asserts in Job 34.10, Therefore hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that He should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that He should do wrong. So in the same way, Paul won't for a second let the charge of God's injustice Stand, And he answers his own question. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By answering in the strongest way possible, the Greek language offers us the answer. He says, absolutely not, by no means. God forbid that this be the case, that God be charged with injustice, or that God demonstrate or does anything that's not right and not fair and not just. So in what follows then in verses 15 through 18 is what theologians call a theodicy. That is a defense of God's righteousness. They defend God's righteousness. Paul has asserted that God sovereignly chooses to save some people while rejecting others. And Paul has done has done so all while assuming That God is perfectly righteous to do so. So then the next few verses explain how that can be the case. They explain how God's righteousness and God's election are perfectly compatible. And that both are in keeping with the character of God's divine nature. Basically Paul is defending God against the charge of being unfair. 
He is defending God against allegations of injustice, of corruption, of showing partiality. Sovereign election, he will show, is not unjust. Secondly, I want you to see in verse 15, God's declaration about his sovereign election. God's declaration about his sovereign election. Paul follows his absolute denial of God's injustice by citing a declaration that God made to Moses in Exodus 33, 19. In that passage, Moses and the people of Israel have come out of Egypt, but they have not yet entered into the promised land. They are wandering in the wilderness. Moses is interceding on behalf of the people of Israel. This is not long after the golden calf disaster. And God has just commanded the people to leave Mount Sinai and go enter into the promised land, a land that is flowing with milk and with honey. But it's also full of people. It is full of the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. But God has promised that He will drive them out and that He will give that land to Israel and to her offspring. But then God says that He Himself won't go with them because He thinks that they are a stiff-necked people and that He will consume them on the way. So Moses, this is bad news to Moses, and Moses pleads to the, with the Lord. Moses asks that if he has found favor with the Lord, then let the Lord also favor Israel, for they too are God's people. He is longing to know God and God's ways more specifically. He wants assurances that the Lord has shown them favor and that the Lord will go with them. And then in Exodus 33, verses 15 through 16, he said to him, If your presence, God, will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So God relents. And God promises that He will, in fact, go with them. He says that He will go with them because Moses has found favor in His sight and because He knows Moses by name. Then Moses makes this request of the Lord. He says, Lord, show me Your glory. You'll probably recall that God tells Moses that he can't actually see God's face and live but that there is a place over behind the rock in which He will set Moses and God will pass by this place and proclaim His name, the Lord, there as He passes by and that the, Moses will be able to see the backwash of the glory of the Lord as He passes by. What is He going to do as He passes by? He's going to proclaim His name. And right after Moses asks to see the Lord's glory, and right before the Lord hides Moses behind the rock, God told him, 
I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And then after telling Moses that, he will proclaim his name to Moses as his glory passes by. He adds, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And that's what Paul now quotes in Romans 9.15. So what does Paul want us to notice and learn? How does this quotation prove that there is no injustice with God? First of all, I want you to notice that it is God Himself who is speaking to Moses. That God is the one saying this. Lest there be anyone say that this is a description made about God from someone else. These are from God's own words about Himself. That He says, I am a, a God who will show mercy on whom I show mercy. And I am a God who will show compassion on whom I have compassion. But secondly, I want you to see that it is God's mercy that is sovereignly dispensed. It is up to the discretion of the Lord and no one forces His hand or makes Him show mercy. His will is ultimate in the matter of bestowing mercy on people. And then thirdly, note that this statement was made in the context of God proclaiming His name and displaying His glory to Moses. God's name and God's glory are revelations of whom God is in Himself. They are a pronouncement of God's own character and reputation. What this means is that it is fundamental to God's character to show sovereign mercy. It is part of what it means to be God, to show mercy on whomever He will, and to be... Uh, it's also fundamental to God to be righteous and holy, just and fair. Therefore, by God's own statement, He is not acting against His characteristic, characteristic righteousness when He shows mercy to some and gives justice to others. God never acts contrary to His nature. His character never contradicts itself. And that's what is important. By God's own declaration, sovereign election is not in any way in conflict with God's justice or God's righteousness. God is not only just and right, but He is the standard for that which is just and right. He doesn't stoop down to our standards of what is fair. He is the standard for what is just and what is fair. And He declares that showing sovereign mercy in no way impugns his justice. Thirdly, I want you to see in verse 16 Paul's deduction regard, regarding God's sovereign election. Paul's deduction regarding God's sovereign election. Paul deduces from God's statement to Moses that the bestowal of mercy is not dependent on anything found within the human, but is instead located solely in the will of God. Earlier, it was stated that God chose the younger Jacob over the older Esau before the boys were born 
or had done anything either good or bad. Now, Paul states more clearly and explicitly what he was inferring there. He says, So then it depends, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We might say, so it depends not on the human willing or human running, but on God who has mercy. It, in this case, is God's choice, God's bestowal of mercy. He chooses to bestow that mercy not because of what God sees the human wants or because of what the human does, but instead because of what He wants and because of what He does. God didn't show mercy to Isaac, Jacob, or Moses because they were good. He didn't even show mercy to them because they believed or wanted to be good. Likewise, God didn't reject Ishmael and Esau because they were especially worse sinners than their brothers. That's because it doesn't depend on man's will or man's work, his desires, nor his deeds. It doesn't depend on human volition or human exertion. What does it depend on? It depends on God who shows mercy. It just simply depends on the one who calls and not the one who works. God's purpose of election is not based upon works, but upon Him who calls. It is the caller who bestows the mercy and not the worker who earns the mercy. Brethren, this is an indication that even the faith that we have is itself a gift from God and not something that we work up. Not only is it true that you have not been saved because you worked for it, but because Christ worked on your behalf, but it is also true that you have not been saved because you willed, but because God willed it. God did not bestow mercy on you because you believed. Instead, you believed because God showed mercy on you. I'll say that again. God did not bestow mercy on you because you believed. Instead, you believed because God showed mercy on you. So because God doesn't treat any of us differently based on anything within us, God can't be charged with being partial. Paul emphatically stated back in chapter 2 that God shows no partiality, right? Paul made that claim on the basis of God's just judgment. God judged all men, both Jews and Gentiles, by the same impartial standard. In Romans 2, 6 and 8, it says, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. But then what did Paul conclude? What humans met this standard that God demanded to earn eternal life? No one, right? He says, indeed, no one does good. No, not one. No one seeks for God. All sin, all fall short of the glory of God. All fall short of His glory. So then we as human beings are not deserving of grace, but of wrath. And if we get what we deserve then, then we deserve God's judgment, don't we? 
This passage is not the first time in the book of Romans that Paul has had to defend God's righteousness. He's done it twice more, both appearing in chapter 3. The first time in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? He says, I speak in a human way, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? So then, God dispensing wrath on those who have sinned and therefore deserve wrath proves that God is just and a righteous judge. It doesn't somehow make God unrighteous to righteously judge those who have acted wickedly. But then the second time that Paul defends God's righteousness, Righteousness was later on in that same chapter. In verses 24 through 26, there we are told some sinners are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So some sinners receive grace and this grace is not deserved but it is a gift and this gift then of redeeming grace was accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross when he made an atoning sacrifice for our sins and that atoning sacrifice assuaged propitiated the wrath of God on our behalf the gift then of God's grace is received by faith isn't it And then, in that very same passage, Paul says, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul says that the sacrifice of Jesus was necessary to demonstrate that God is righteous. God's righteousness had been called into question because God had previously shown grace and mercy to some people and He had passed over their sins. You see, God just can't sweep the sins of the world under the rug and act like they're not there. They have to be paid for. Justice has to be served. So their sins were forgiven without any justice being given for their actions. But God wanted to justify guilty sinners because that's who God is. He's forgiving and merciful. And God desired to show mercy to those who had sinned and were deserving of wrath. But God's righteousness also demanded that God exercise judgment upon all sin. So in order for God to do this, for God to do both, to be righteous and holy and also gracious and merciful, the solution to that divine dilemma, as it were, was that Christ Himself would be crucified in our place. That God's justice would be served by Christ taking the punishment that you and I deserved. 
And that God's mercy could be dispensed upon guilty sinners who were themselves deserving of wrath, but are receiving God's grace and mercy. The point is that God's mercy is never unjust. Jesus has paid for every sin that God forgives. So God's sovereign mercy cannot be construed as injustice, for God has maintained and demonstrated His justice perfectly by crucifying His perfect Son in our place. Mercy, you see, is not a form of injustice. It is simply non-justice. In eternity past, God wasn't up in heaven like a person with a big pile of marbles. He wasn't taking the marbles from that pile and then choosing whether those people represented by the marbles would go to heaven or hell. He didn't go, this one's heaven, this one hell, this one heaven, this one hell. No, the whole pile is destined for hell. And God has said, I'm going to rescue this one. And I'm going to rescue this one. And I'm going to rescue this one. If we get what we deserve, then we all are headed for hell. But God has shown mercy to some to whom He wills. R.C. Sproul illustrated this idea wonderfully well in his little book, Chosen by God, which I recommend to you. He told of a semester that he was teaching philosophy and the students had three papers that were due at various times during the semester. Well, the due date for the first paper came and went, and 95% of the students turned in their paper on time. But there were about three students that didn't turn their paper in on time. And Dr. Sproul said, I tell you what, if you'll get it to me by next week, you can, you can have no penalty on that paper. Well, later on, the second paper came due. And this time, about 15 students didn't turn their paper in on the day that it was due. And again, R.C., Dr. Sproul, said, you'll have an opportunity, you can turn it in later, turn it in next week, there'll be no penalty. Well, then the end of the semester came, and that was the due date for the final paper. And this time, as you can imagine, half the class didn't have their papers to turn in on the date that it was due. And the student shrugged and said, Oh, Doc, we'll get it to you next week. And he said, No, grades are due next week. I've got to have the paper today. Well, what do you think they said? In unison, they said, That's not fair. And what did he say? You want to know what's fair? Oh, you want fair. You want justice. He said, all of y'all that turned in your paper late the first time, you get a grade deducted. And all of you that turned in your paper late the second time, you get your grade deducted. And all of you that are late this time, you get your grade deducted. You know why? That's justice. What I've been showing you is grace, not justice. That is what's fair. That's what's deserved. And so we're the same way, aren't we? We have a screwed up, understanding of fair and, and what's just. Fifth, fourthly, I want you to see Scripture's assertion of God's sovereign reprobation. Scripture's assertion of God's sovereign reprobation. Thus far, 
In our passage, Paul has dealt with the mercy side to God's sovereign predestination. There are two sides to this coin in there. There's one side that's election and the other side that's reprobation. Just as Paul said earlier, Jacob have I loved, but there's a second side, isn't there? Esau have I hated. So predestination has two sides, election and reprobation. Election then is God showing sovereign grace to choose some people for salvation. And reprobation is God sovereignly passing over others, choosing to harden them in preparation for just condemnation. The earlier verses that we've looked at dealt with sovereign election. But verse 17 deals with God's sovereign reprobation. The previous two examples from Romans 9 were two pairs of brothers, weren't they? Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau. But for Moses, there's not a brother that is his companion. It's the other major figure in the Exodus story. It's Pharaoh, right? And the story comes from Exodus 9. And God has already struck Egypt with several plagues because Pharaoh will not let God's people go. And God is about to strike them with another plague. And as before, God commands that Moses go present himself before Pharaoh. And God is going to tell Moses, uh, tell Pharaoh through Moses what he intends to do. And he's going to demand that Pharaoh once again let God's people go. And in verse 13 of chapter 9 of Exodus, God tells Pharaoh, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth, God says. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. I could have just killed you all in one fell swoop. He says, but for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all of the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. You see, in Egyptian society, Pharaoh was considered a god. But Yahweh is demonstrating to Pharaoh, to Egypt, and to all the world that neither Pharaoh nor any other Egyptian deity are worthy of that title. Yahweh alone is sovereign. And Yahweh alone is God. In His sovereignty, God has raised Pharaoh up. That is, Yahweh has caused Pharaoh to ascend to his lofty position as ruler of Egypt. And He has placed Pharaoh in this very role in salvation history. And God has a purpose for doing so. His stated purpose is to show Pharaoh the power of Yahweh and to proclaim the name of Yahweh to all the earth. In other words, God has raised hard-hearted, stubborn, and obstinate Pharaoh up for His own name's sake. God has acted in the reprobation of Pharaoh the same way that He acts in every other thing. He has magnified His own glory. And Pharaoh's obstinate refusal to let the people of Israel go will lead to awesome displays of God's power and particular choice of Israel. Pharaoh's hard heart will lead to God's mighty hand delivering the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage, but it will also lead Pharaoh to his own destruction in the Red Sea. 
Last week we saw that God had a purpose in choosing Jacob over Esau. The electing purpose of God was to demonstrate that it is not based upon works, but based upon Him who calls. Indeed, it depends not on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. But in the same way, God is also the ultimate cause behind the hardening of the reprobate, and in them too does God also have a purpose. And that purpose is once again to magnify God's greatness. Perhaps one reason that we think so little about the doctrines of grace sometimes is that they value so little, is that we value so little the greatness of, and the glory of God. Instead, we want to exalt man and put him on a pedestal, but Paul's gospel exalts the sovereign majesty of God and puts man in his proper place. Lastly, I want you to look at verse 18, and we see there Paul's conclusion regarding God's sovereign predestination. Paul's conclusion regarding God's sovereign predestination. In verse 18, Paul brings the last four verses to a conclusion. He restates what he earlier said about God's sovereignty and election, and he now adds a parallel statement dealing with God's sovereignty and reprobation. He concludes, So then, God has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. God's will is not only ultimate in bestowing mercy, but God's will is also ultimate in those who are hardened. Douglas Moo says, God's hardening is an action that renders a person insensitive to God and His Word, and that, if not reversed, culminates in eternal damnation. It's usually at this point, by the way, that those who object to the doctrine of predestination pipe up and they say, Hey, but Exodus says that Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. They go on to argue, it may be that God hardens Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Their observation is a good one, but their, their objection is not a good one. Exodus does contain some statements that tell us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and others that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But a careful examination of both the relevant passages in the book of Exodus as well as this verse in Romans reveals that it is God who is the primary and ultimate cause of Pharaoh's hard heart. But the fact that Pharaoh willingly was involved in the process of God hardening his heart is very telling, isn't it? It's telling us about the nature of this hardening process that we have. When, when God calls someone to election, when God shows them electing, electing grace, He is calling them to act in such a way, causing them, in fact, to act in such a way that is contrary to to their natural inclination, contrary to their natural will. To come to Christ is not our natural desire. It's the supernatural grace that effectually causes us to do that. But this hardening is instead allowing us to act in the way that comes natural to us. And that's what I want you to see. Uh, just as water always flows downhill when the levy of God's hand 
is released from someone like Pharaoh, then he delves into the depravity in which he naturally wants to flow. Like a, like a rebellious dog that is apt to run away from its owner or to run into traffic for its own destruction. The owner may put a leash upon the dog. Well, when, well, when the owner releases that leash, the dog may run where it wants to already go. In many ways, what we're saying here is that this passage or God's hardening is a lot like what God has already shown us in Romans 1 where it says that God gave them over. God gave them over to these sinful desires to delve deeper and further into their own debased depravity. Just as a potter is able to keep clay moldable and pliable by working it with his hands and adding the occasional moisture to the clay, so clay becomes hard when the potter removes his hand from it and leaves it to dry in the sun. In one sense, we can say that the potter chose to harden the clay. In another sense, we can say that the clay hardened as a result of its own natural makeup. That's what we're saying here. That God chooses to allow sinners to go in the way that they are going. We're not saying that they're trying to swim and God is holding their hand underwater. They're flowing and running, indeed rejecting, going exactly where they want. God didn't force Pharaoh to act in any way that was contrary to Pharaoh's own depravity. God was ultimate and sovereign over the hardening of Pharaoh, just as He is over the hardening of other reprobate souls. So then He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. What's interesting about that statement in the context of Romans 9 through 11 is that Paul is going to eventually tell us in chapter 11 that ethnically Jewish people have not come to Jesus as their Messiah because God has partially and temporarily hardened them. In chapter 11, verse 7, he says, The elect obtained salvation, but the rest were hardened. Now from that statement, God, from the statement that God made to Pharaoh, we have concluded that God hardened him so that the world may know who God is, right? God has a purpose in this hardening, so that the world may know who God is. Is that the case with the Jewish hardening as well? Yes. For Paul says that their trespass means salvation has come to the Gentiles. And that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So God has not chosen to harden some of the Jews for no purpose. He has a plan through this hardening to magnify His own name and His own glory among the nations. No wonder Paul in Romans 11 closes with the doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. And so, having looked at this passage, I want to ask you, how will you glorify God? 
Will you glorify God by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, having received the mercy of God? For God says, all that call on Him, everyone who confesses His name, He holds out His hands to. Anyone who comes to Him, He will not turn away. The reason you don't come to the Lord is not because of the Lord, but it's because you don't want to. <coughs> Prove me wrong. Come to the Lord. Come to the Lord Jesus and be saved. Find mercy. And you will receive glory. And you, I mean, and, and God will be glorified. But God will also be glorified even in the last day you refuse. He will be glorified in all ways, whether through His justice or His mercy, both of which He sovereignly bestows. Which are you? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that...